Sam Cassidy had told people six months prior to this, I'm going to shoot you in the face. And we can't go back and ask those guys now to verify because they're all dead. Because Sam did shoot him in the face. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of Not Safe at Work. I'm your host, Alexis, and the story I have for you today is horrifying. And what makes it even worse is that it could have and it should have been prevented. This is the story of the VTA rail yard mass shooting. Wednesday, May 26, 2021, should have been a normal day at the VTA in San Jose, California. 57-year-old Sam Cassidy had worked there for 20 years in the power department. Sam was an outsider at work. He was never seen laughing or talking with the other guys, but not only that, people were afraid of Sam. And there had been numerous complaints over the years of other coworkers expressing their fear of him. The VTA released 222 pages of records, including emails documenting some of these complaints. There was one dated Friday, January 31st, 2020, and a verbal altercation was described, which depicts Sam going on a two to three minute rant, pointing and shouting at his fellow employees and referring to another one as the most corrupt person at VTA. The email ends by saying that an unnamed employee said, quote, he scares me. If someone was to go postal, it would be him, unquote. Three months and 26 days after this email was sent and responded to, Sam Cassidy loaded up a duffel bag full of three semi-automatic handguns and high-capacity magazines, headed to the VTA, and before turning the gun on himself, fired 39 shots, brutally murdering nine of his carefully selected co-workers. I interviewed longtime VTA employee Kirk Bertolet. To give you some background, I'm in what's called the signals department in rail, and we handle everything to do with train move, making sure the trains move safely. We have systems that detect train movement in the lower crossing gates and all, all kinds of things like that. And the power department is parallel to us, and they are responsible for the power on the cable that runs over the train, the train hooks to it and powers the vehicle. So we're two similar blue collar, hard charging, take no prisoners kind of uh, people. These workshops and work centers are across the nation, whether we're working on rail, whether we're working in power, whether it's, it's Pacific Gas and Electric or Oklahoma Gas and Electric, the environments that we work under are the same, and we treat each other the same. For an, a no BS work group, that if you're not cutting it, if you're not doing your job, they're going to tell you. I'm going to tell you. Anybody else going to tell you? So you got a group of blue collar workers, and if somebody isn't pulling their weight, then they're going to call you out on it. Nothing wrong with that. And if you can't handle that kind of situation that's not the place for you so what happened was sam cassidy was a square peg trying to fit in a round hole 
I had to Google what that meant, but it was a square peg trying to fit in a round hole. And it is an idiomatic expression which describes the unusual individualist who cannot fit into a niche of their society, according to Wikipedia. I knew all the guys that worked with him. We all were friends. We all all worked parallel to each other on the system. We supported each other in, in doing various functions. And I know that if Sam Cassidy wouldn't fit in, that they were going to tell him. So one of the big messages that I want to get out of this is how we treat each other in the workplace can make things really good and it can have very serious negative consequences. Think about that. Be nice to your coworkers and people in general because you never know what people are struggling with. And I knew everybody there. I saw them die. So we can't go back and ask them, but nobody really, nobody recognized the volatile nature of Cassidy because nobody ever really talked to him. He, he was an outsider. I never saw him sitting at the table, at lunch with anybody. He was always outside. And in that, I can see how he got pushed and, and snapped. If he was mentally ill when he started, I'm sure there was no uh, no escape from anything that those guys had to do and and the things they said that, you know, they held no punches. And if we had a problem, it was straight up talked about and and right to the point. And Cassidy carried a big grudge. Sam's ex-wife hadn't spoken to him in 15 years. And then after this happened, she said even back then, he would say he wanted to kill people at work. Imagine the buildup. So when, when the people that he shot, he made sure they were dead. And um, it, was, it was a brutal day. Uh, and, and the message that I try to get out of it is really we need to pay attention as individuals to how we treat one another. And I'm not saying we need to sugarcoat everything and, and you know, go to have the pendulum swing way to the other side. But definitely how we, we deal with one another and how we treat one another can have a huge impact. That seems so simple, but it's so true. The other aspect of the situation was that we had a completely dysfunctional supervision and chain of command. From the two supervisors that managed their shop, they were completely dysfunctional. There was a dispute over one of them having to go to graveyard, one of them having to work days. The supervisor that was in charge was not qualified to do the job. How relatable is that? Like how many of you have managers or supervisors that you're way more qualified than? It's so frustrating. She was definitely incapable of handling it and what happened was there was a dispute between the two supervisors and they quit talking to one another they quit being functional and so bad it was so bad that it impacted my shop because when we needed support from their shop and their supervisors they couldn't communicate we would ask the crew we'd need support from the crew and the one supervisor say, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll take care of it. And nothing had happened. And then they'd go to night shift and we'd be ready to, to go out on a job. And 
those guys would be going, we haven't received anything. We haven't received any word that we're supporting you tonight beyond what our regularly scheduled stuff is. And that frustrated us. I can only imagine how it impacted their shop and their workers. Just seems like it was pure and utter chaos due to poor management. They were beside themselves with stress, all the the, the things that, that uh, they were trying to do. They were demoralized. And you throw in Sam Cassidy, who's got a mental issue, and he's done. You know, he they just triggered him right over the edge. And so my statements, my interviews from the very beginning has been the BTA, my employer, failed to do their job. And so then the two supervisors and then their upper level supervisors did nothing to really stop and resolve these issues. And they were completely dysfunctional. So Sam didn't just show up at work that day and just start shooting at everyone that he saw. He was targeting certain people. I asked Kirk to tell us a little bit more about the day of the shooting. So they were having a meeting that basically a a shift change and they were just sitting at their break table. Sam Cassidy got upset. He already knew and planned that he was going to do this. Not only did Sam know he was going to do this, he set his house on fire in the morning before he left for work that day. When he started shooting, he was targeting specific individuals. The first one to go was Tim Romo. And then uh, Jose was the next. And then he uh, shot everybody else on his shift that he had been working with. He shot six people in the room that he started shooting. And he skipped or he did not shoot. One girl who was on the graveyard shift, he looked at her and he shot the guys next to her. Then there was John Courtney, who was a union rep. And he looked at him and said, I'm not going to kill you and left and walked out. When he went to the other building, he was targeting people in timekeeping. He was, um, the, the final trigger was an issue over payroll. And so he went up to the timekeepers and he shot out the windows and he went in there and he killed three more people. One person, he just was a random train operator. He just ran into the hallway and then uh, killed him and then killed two more people in timekeeping. So he, he had an agenda. When that agenda was complete, he killed himself. If he was after numbers, just wanted to kill everybody in the building, me and my two co-workers in our office were exposed. He could have walked in, killed us in our office, and nobody would have even heard it. And then he could have gone and killed everybody else or anybody that wanted to. But uh, he didn't shoot at anybody else but the specific people he was after. I asked Kirk if Sam saw him in the hallway that day. Does he think he would have skipped him or shot him? Uh, I had a cordial relationship with Sam that I don't think he would have shot me unless I'd made an attempt to stop him. Did you ever expect this from Sam, like as a person? Did you ever think him of everyone there would be the one to show up and pull the trigger? I didn't think about that. I was concerned about a couple other employees that I work with in my department. But Sam Cassidy, I just started talking to him in November of 2020. And um, 
had gotten some uh, technical information from him. We were working a job and he provided that very nicely. You know, we just pass each other and say hi to each other and we're cordial. I didn't realize uh, that he could do this. But in hindsight, now that I look back over the years that he'd worked there and I'd seen him, I'd never talked to him prior to November 2020. He was just a, a person I pass or, you know, he was in that department. And, uh, but I realized that he never, ever, I never saw him, like I said, sitting at the break table, like with all the other guys. He was always outside. He was never, never with anybody else. He was always alone. I feel like we all have that one person at work, the outsider, they eat lunch by themselves, don't have any friends. Maybe let's be nice to that person. So now that I look back at it, I go, yeah, well, that, that completely fits because nobody would talk to him. Nobody would, would have anything to do with him. So in the dynamics of, of these shops, I would say, yeah. And if he's, uh, if he's not cutting it, if he's not doing his job, they're going to tell him. And we're not going to be nice about it, you know. So that situation, I could see that it happened and I could see him doing it now. However, several of my other co-workers. This is the part that really doesn't sit well with me. After this event happened, we were sitting in the sheriff's office waiting for to be interviewed. And I saw two guys and one guy looked at the other and goes, didn't I tell you it'd be him? And the other guy goes, yeah, you're absolutely right. So other people had noticed that. And other people had, had said, this guy's a loose cannon. He's, he's probably going to be a, a mass shooter. And yeah, that played out. Okay, so before I knew the whole story and before I saw the emails that the VTA put out after this event happened, documenting that, you know, people reported this a few months before, I asked Kirk if Sam's coworkers suspected him to actually turn out to be a mass shooter why wasn't it reported? Why didn't they tell HR? Why didn't they tell their supervisors, their managers, anyone? Because it's a pretty serious thing to think. So wouldn't they have told anyone? Okay, this is a very important uh, question that you're bringing up. I did mention that the his chain of command was completely dysfunctional. And these issues by his fellow employees were brought to management's attention. And they did not deal with it properly. Sam Cassidy had told people six months prior to this, I'm going to shoot you in the face. And we can't go back and ask those guys now to verify because they're all dead because Sam did shoot him in the face. So if anyone is wondering if Kirk still works at VTA, I did ask him that. And I also asked him after this terrible tragedy took place, nine people murdered on the clock at work. What was done about it? Who stepped in? Who took responsibility? Who got to the bottom of what happened and why and how can we prevent this? I have been um, on workman's comp since the shooting. Uh, I've been uh, getting therapy and counseling and, and stuff. So I am on a, a medical leave. I addressed this. I went to the board. I talked to upper management. I was saying they need to have an investigation. They need to take the five individuals that were in the chain of command and relieve them of their jobs and recommended terminating all five of them. However, 
I was promised that there would be a full, thorough investigation, but nobody has ever called me and asked me what happened and who failed the employees of VTA. So to me, right now, VTA is operating as usual. We have a saying at VTA that upper management's style is to ignore it, ignore it, ignore it. It becomes a crisis, throw everything at it, and then hope it goes away. And it usually does. I was promised a thorough investigation by a law firm, but the thing about law firms is they're hired to protect the client that pays them. And so I don't really see anything coming out of it. The supervisor who knew about all these complaints about Sam was removed from working in that department and promoted and is still working at the VTA today. You know, I do not see how that is going to help anybody. The people that are now working under are furious. We can't believe this happened to them, but it's just a horrible situation. I, I really, really am disappointed. And that has been one of the focal things. The things that I've focused on is that I wanted to get VTA to change for the better so that this doesn't happen again. I do not want VTA to take over the going postal little statement. You know, having another incident like this would be would be horrible. And at this point, it's completely preventable if they learn from their mistakes. The thing about what they're doing is the people that created this problem are the ones being tasked to fix the problem. And if you are a person that doesn't even know how you got into this situation, how can you ask them to get out of it? And those are the people that are being tasked with redesigning the building to possibly make it safer, redoing the management structure. They're not doing anything. And it's the same people that created the mess. And I'm going like, you're not going to succeed. And I don't even think they want to succeed. I do not feel the VTA is really, really interested in making the changes. So what's come of that is that since I was the person that stood up and said, hey, VTA, you got to do something about it. I've had other employees from other departments throughout the company come to me and go, hey, we got this problem over in the IT department. We've got this problem in the bus mechanics, in the North Yard, management pushing people. It's a hostile work environment. And those people are afraid it's going to happen to them. And I concur with that. I'm completely sympathetic to their situation. And I've asked management to address it. And they're not. Do you have any examples of some of these issues that are still going on in those departments that they're not addressing? The IT department has got a manager named and he has come in and created an extremely hostile environment and he has been disciplined for his management style and for the way he treats employees. He's been investigated and they still continue to keep him going. A good manager might have one or two complaints, but he's had over 30 and yet They continue to allow him to work there. And what I would do is say, hey, one, go after him. But the guy who's keeping him there is his manager. That's the person we need to go after. That's the person that needs to be terminated and say, hey, you and the guy you hired to manage this has created a hostile work environment and it cannot continue. 
Don't you wonder why it's not people like Kirk that are running VTA instead of the people that are running VTA? And yet, VTA continues down that road. And, and I've hammered, I've hammered management over this. I've finally, you know, I, what can they do to me? You know, fire me for, for speaking out to calling them on, on their mistakes. So I'm not afraid to, to do something, but other people have, you know, careers and um, pensions and stuff that are all on the line. So I'm like, why not? Why not? Let's, let's, let's do it. Let's really hammer them to see if we can finally get them to change. I don't know if I've been effective. I know I've got a couple of changes made. I've asked them to uh, call me and talk to me and nobody has. They, they've called, upper management's called me and, and checked on me. And uh, I actually had an, an hour sit down with uh, a county supervisor who's on the board. I've written them letters. Kirk wrote a long, descriptive, really well-written letter to the VTA health and safety manager. He names the people directly responsible for this and outlines exactly who and what went wrong. I wanted to read a little bit of the beginning of the letter. It says, when is VTA management going to stand up and investigate VTA's failures that created this situation? Or does VTA not really want to get to the bottom of this? Please do not hide behind the quote, we didn't know, we had no way of knowing this was possible outcome, unquote. There were multiple warnings and red flags that Cassidy could do this. Just because his chain of command did not do their jobs, did not properly deal with Cassidy, did not document his outbursts and threats of violence against his coworkers, does not mean that there weren't any, and VTA is free of any fault or responsibility as to what happened. You can find Kirk's full letter at www.notsafeatworkpodcast.com. You know, I, I hope they make the changes, but I don't know if that's happening. We hear about these types of horror stories every day on the internet, on TV, on social media, but do you ever sit there and think this could ever be your reality, that this could ever happen to you? I asked Kirk this same question. I never thought that this would happen to me. You know, you hear about it all over the country, and the first thing, when the shots were fired and, and bullets were flying, I was thinking, this isn't, this isn't my reality. This, you know, it, to happen to me. And then it, it is, it is happening to me and it can happen to you and it can happen to that person. And it can, it can happen to me again. So a couple of things to look at is, is my life, is my job that important? What, what is more important, my life or my job? And if you're miserable at work, do something else. I was extremely happy at the VTA. I was having a great time. I really loved my job. I really loved the people that I was working with. I, I enjoyed going to work every day. It was a great job. And I was not aware of the hostilities that were going on in the other department. So I was thinking, no way. There's no way. But now it has. So I couldn't see it coming from that direction, from where it happened, from the department, the guys that it happened with. But if you're in that environment, my piece of advice is get out of it. Do yourself a favor and walk away. You know, spend your time. You don't have to quit your job and, and be broke, but start looking for another place to work. Start looking for some other thing to do. 
you know, you could tell upper management, you can tell whatever, make, make those complaints, file to HR, whatever, but your health, your mental health, your family has a lot more important than your job. That's number one. Number two is if you see these environments, if you see this, this hostile thing taking place and you're in a, a corporation that has some kind of HR system report it and make sure it gets noted because if you report a red flag today and you say, look, I'm really not comfortable working with this person or I feel unsafe, they have got to do something about it. Sam's co-workers did report this behavior to their supervisor. She chose not to do anything with the information. Instead, she created a culture of, if you keep complaining, I'm going to make your life miserable. The signs were there but they didn't do anything about it. So those people needed to really step up. And when Sam Cassidy threatened them, they should have not taken anything from management and said, this situation is intolerable and cannot continue. But my overall number one piece of advice is get out of it. It's, it's just not worth living that kind of, of situation. I don't know about you, but I found it a little bit weird that every single person that Sam shot at, every one of them died. You would think one of them would walk away with maybe injuries or was able to get away. So I asked Kirk if there were any factors that played into that. And here's what he had to say. The rooms that people were in, in our building, where the shooting started, there was one small hallway in and no exit. Do not ever work in a room, a conference room or anything that does not have two exits. When Sam Cassidy walked into the building A and he walked upstairs and he went into timekeeping, there was no exit for those employees. He shot out the window, opened the door and walked right in. And there was no place for those people to go. Had he walked down the hallway to the driver's room, this is a, a transit agency, and the driver's break room was a room where set up for the drivers to relax. They got tables, uh, computers, uh, various stuff. Sometimes they have split shifts and they hang out there for multiple hours on their own time. But there's also a balcony. So when the shooting started and it was announced, it, you know, everybody locked down. Well, they all ran out onto the balcony. And there was no exit. If Sam Cassidy had walked down the aisle and shot out the window and entered that room, I don't know how many people were there, but they were all trapped. There was no place for them to go. Never, ever again work in a place that doesn't have two exits. We have, uh, you know, fire extinguishers. We do practice fire alarms. We do all kinds of stuff. And various companies and stuff are recognizing needing to do training for mass shooters. But look at your environment and always look for a way out. The other thing, too, that happened during this was the saying is run, hide and fight, I think is the, the new statement that they do. If you can run, run. If you can't run, hide. And if you can't hide, fight, do something, throw something, do something. And put it in your mind that if it comes down to it, I need to react. I need to 
take care of me and I need to take care of my fellow coworkers or my, the people that are around me, complete strangers or good friends react. I left the security of my office to get my truck and try and run Cassidy down and kill him. When I found out that he'd left the building, there's a big open space. And I thought if I can get to my truck, my work truck, a Ford F-350 Super Duty against the 9 mil handguns, a fair fight. And I was ready to do it. Kirk's a badass, isn't he? React and step up and help as much as you can. And uh, situations like this, you, you could possibly save lives by stepping up and getting involved. And just set your mindset to do and be prepared for this to happen. The nine men that were murdered that day, they had families, they had loved ones. One of these men was 40-year-old Michael Rudimedkin, the loving husband of Gloria Rudimedkin. Gloria spoke at the memorial for the VTA victims on July 18, 2021. My name is Gloria Rudimedkin, Michael's wife. May 26 changed the lives of nine families for the worst. Before I begin to speak about my husband, I need to be his voice and discuss my experience up until this point. All of the victims' families are now in a club nobody wants to be a member of. Our family waited together for 12 grueling hours on May 26th to find out what happened to my husband. Our family and friends in particular had hope. Hope that we would find Michael possibly injured, but that he would be okay. That hope was slowly taken away from us throughout the day, beginning with the press conference around 2 p.m. when Mayor Lincardo gave his condolences in reference to my husband, Michael. Though we heard about this from friends and family, no official would verify that news. We remained waiting, clinging to our hope. The hope that this time, it was a mistake. Around 4 p.m., a Red Cross employee gave his sincere condolences to us, only to be swiftly corrected by another staff member that we hadn't been told anything yet. We wondered why we were being treated so cruelly. Two hours later, just in time for the six o'clock news, we were finally told what happened, that my husband was brutally murdered by a coworker. I fled that tiny room at the Red Cross, telling the staff that I felt like I was going to be ill and I needed a restroom. Instead of leading me to one, they escorted me right outside to the parking lot near the bushes in front of the waiting press. Reeling from the pain of losing my husband, I couldn't help but wonder what I had done to be treated so inhumanely and disrespectfully. I'll never understand why the people who cared the most about the victims were the last to be told the truth. I would like to think that the city, mayor, governor, VTA, and Red Cross staff didn't intentionally need to add to the trauma of that day, but they did. I sincerely hope that they recognize that this needs to be rectified. Moving forward with proper training for crisis situations such as these, while I hope a tragedy like this never happens again, I understand that is unlikely. 
I'm standing here before you in hopes to advocate for future change. And I hope my honesty will lead to better treatment of future victims' families, one with empathy, compassion, and respect. This is an unreal experience. You hug your husband before he heads off to work, and then he never comes home. What makes it even harder to digest is to discover that multiple people spoke up about the murderer, expressing their fear of him, and yet these legitimate fears were not mitigated. It is unforgivable. Listening to the security footage from that day, knowing actions were taken on exigent circumstances, breaks my heart. Simply knowing that this could have been prevented, that we didn't have to be in this room today, had proper actions been taken, fills me with immeasurable anger. The immense weight of sadness that Michael's family and I carry is unfathomable. I hope that the next time someone speaks up in fear of a colleague, or anyone for that matter, that they are heard, that you listen, and risks are eliminated because no one deserves to feel this pain. So here we are. At age 40, I buried my husband. Michael's parents buried their second child. His sister Janelle lost her remaining sibling. Michael's family and friends are devastated that a kind, gentle, humble, generous man was taken from us in such a horrific manner. Again, I implore you to make a change moving forward. If someone sees something, says something to staff expressing fear of a coworker, then you need to listen and take that information seriously as it could save lives. My husband, My husband's life was lost to a senseless and brutal act of violence in the workplace. And because of that, we are gathered here today to memorialize the wonderful life of Michael Rudemeckin, a loving husband, son, brother, uncle, nephew, and friend to more people than a stadium could ever hold. I reached out to Gloria to see if she wanted to make a statement or do an interview, but she's not able to talk to me at this time, I'm sure because of a legal reason or something like that. But I did want to read what she wrote back to me. She said, Hi, Alexis. Please, by all means, utilize my speech or anything I stated in the past for your podcast. I currently can't comment at the moment. Thank you for shedding light on this terrible tragedy brought on by a toxic work environment. To me, Gloria doesn't even fully blame Sam for this. If anything, I think she more so blames the VTA because they allowed this to happen. They ignored the complaints. They ignored all the signs. And hearing this from one of the victim's wives, I think, speaks volumes. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the first episode of Not Safe at Work. New episodes are going to come out every week. And for now, they can be found at notsafeatworkpodcast.com. If you or anyone you know has a horror story, a workplace tragedy, anything worth telling, things like this that simply shouldn't have happened, but it did because of poor management, toxic environments, mistreatment of employees, unsafe working conditions, 
please, please, please reach out to me at notsafeatworkpodcast at gmail.com. I want to spread awareness on this. And I think this happens way more than we know. I think there's so much wrong, so much covered up in the workplace. So let's expose it. Lastly, if you are that person, that toxic, bullying, drama-causing person, or if you're the person that's allowing this to happen on your watch, take a look in the mirror, evaluate yourself, be a better person, because there's no reason why anyone should ever feel not safe at work.